Hello, and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast where we look at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Bershon, and I teach English at McEwen University, and uh, this this episode is uh, from a lecture that I gave in a course on narratives across media, where we're looking at uh, comparing Station Eleven, a novel by Emily St. John Mandel, with the prologue from Stephen King's The Stand. So last time we were talking about an in, uh, the term intertextuality, this $20 word, right? This uh, very academic term. Intertextuality, a term popularized by Julia Kristeva, which refers to the multiple ways in which any one literary text is in fact made up of other texts by means of its open or covert citations and allusions, end quote. And that's from Abrams and Harpum's Glossary of Literary Terms. Now, what do we mean by intertextuality in layman's terms? It's that moment when we're watching a movie or reading a book and we go, oh, this reminds me of whatever it might be. And those reminiscences can be open. In other words, the filmmaker or the writer makes a clear reference that we can identify. So in Station Eleven, uh, Emily St. John Mandel's reference to King Lear is a very clear, open citation, whereas the covert citations or allusions can be things that either the uh, author has embedded in the work or that they may not have even meant to have been there. And you might say, well, if an author didn't mean for it to be there, how can it be there? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, There are these moments in Station Eleven uh, that reference the larger scheme of disaster films, of uh, apocalyptic films, apocalyptic narratives, disaster narratives. Uh, And in disaster narratives, apocalyptic narratives, we often get this character who tries to warn everyone that there's a shark in the water, etc. You know, the, the very famous uh, idea from Jaws of the police chief and this shark expert telling the mayor of this town to shut down the beaches or the shark's going to eat the people. And he ignores it. And of course there's, you know, someone gets eaten and, uh, we have this moment that gets repeated over and over again of the person who knows, right? Jeff Goldblum and Independence Day knows what the aliens are up to and that it's a bad thing and that they're not here just to say, you know, ET phone home. Uh, we have the Norwegian film, The Wave, where there's this guy who's like, there's a piece of our fjord that's going to fall off and it's going to hit the water and it's going to create a tidal wave and we're all going to die. And everyone says, nah. And of course they do this. We need these characters, by the way. We absolutely need these characters because if we didn't have Pierce Brosnan and Dante's Peak going, the volcano is going to explode, the volcano is going to explode, and then have someone who responds to him as saying, nah, we wouldn't get the enjoyment that we do. And we do get enjoyment. We get pleasure from these types of films. We love to watch the train wreck. We, we pull up lawn chairs to watch the volcano explode, to watch the aliens destroy um, visible landmarks recognizable landmarks we we want to see that that town get pounded by the the tidal wave uh if you say you don't i don't know why you attend those movies maybe you don't maybe you're not that sort of person but there are lots of people who show up for this stuff if we're watching jaws we are waiting for somebody to get bit right we want to see that that's what we showed up for 
We didn't. If you say you, you went to that and you didn't want that, I don't know what you were doing in that theater. Intertextuality also refers, though, to the multiple. So we've got this multiple ways in which any one literary text. And I said last time that we could replace literary text with narrative. This term that we're using for the individual instances of the bigger story that we're looking at. We're looking at stories of apocalyptic and a post-apocalyptic nature throughout this series. And those and, and that story is the world ends, right? That story, the world ends, is then generated in particular narratives like Station Eleven, like Contagion, like The Stand, Stephen King's The Stand. So we have multiple ways in which any one narrative is in fact made up of other narratives by means of its, here we go, unavoidable participation. It's unavoidable participation in the common stock of linguistic and literary conventions, the unavoidable participation in the common stock of literary conventions, we might say narrative conventions, the narrative convention, that conventional aspect of the guy who always knows and the mayor who won't listen to him. That's a convention. That's a narrative convention. People are always like, oh, there's just nothing's original anymore. And if things were too original, you wouldn't be able to even comprehend them. They wouldn't make sense to you. There has to be a certain amount of linguistic and literary conventions in any work of written prose for you to comprehend it. And when someone goes too far afield from those, li those linguistic and literary conventions, it makes their work very difficult to read. If you've ever read James Joyce's Ulysses, you will know what I'm talking about. But, you know, if you've ever watched some avant-garde film that's really pushing the boundaries of what movies are doing, and you hear, you know, film critics going, this is such a great film, and you're like, I don't understand why, and it's because... Most of us rely upon the conventional aspects of language and imagery for our stories, for our narratives. So intertextuality is about the unavoidable participation in the common stock of linguistic and literary conventions and procedures that are always already in place, always already in place, and constitute the discourses into which we are born. The very way in which we, we, we learn at a very early age how to know who the villain is in a story. And if a story is more complex than we are ready for, then we won't necessarily understand who the villain is and we'll turn to the person next to us and say, is he the bad guy? When we're very young, we can't necessarily parse really complex narratives. And so we grow in our ability to comprehend narrative. Narrative, when we're very young, is filled with conventions. It's filled with a common stock of linguistic and literary conventions that are repeated over and over and over again. Film is filled with those things as well. And as we grow as readers and viewers, as we grow as consumers of narratives, we may want fewer conventions, but ultimately we'll always need some conventions to even comprehend the narrative that we're consuming. Intertextuality is about recognizing those conventions and recognizing the author or the filmmaker's unavoidable participation in the common stock of those literary conventions. And in apocalyptic narratives, we, we ha always have that guy who knows, right? That's one of the conventions. We have another convention, which is the let's pack up and go real quick moment. And we've been looking at that through the grocery store uh, scene in... Uh, there's two of them in the movie Contagion, and then there's the one that we've looked at in Station Eleven, in the opening section to Station Eleven, the theater. And today I want us to contrast, once again, Station Eleven's The Theater and Jeevan going through the um, grocery store, his, you know, prepare to prepare for the apocalypse moment. 
this conventional scene which we find over and over again in apocalyptic literature. We want to compare and contrast that with Stephen King's The Stand, the prologue to Stephen King's extended version of The Stand. Actually, two two versions of The Stand have been published uh, over time. I mean, there's lots of versions if you consider like that. There, there's a comic book version as well, but King. King's first version of the novel did not include the prologue. The prologue was only included uh, later in this extended version, which was released after King's uh, fame had grown to the point where, you know, you could re-release a book that you'd already read. And if you just put in a bunch of deleted scenes, as it were, uh, we'd all pick it up and read it. And King, King's The Stand is, is one of these giant works of apocalyptic literature that many, many people have read. And so coming to Station Eleven, you might be a reader who's familiar with King's The Stand. I certainly was when I read it. And right away, I thought of the prologue. And when I identified that I had students who felt that Station Eleven was really intense and horrific or scary or suspenseful, I thought, maybe they haven't read Stephen King's The Stand. Because if you've read that then you would know what tense looks like. Before we get to looking at that comparison, I just want to talk a little bit about how, once again, we receive literature. We talked at the beginning of this series about just picking a book up, just the physical copy of Station Eleven. What does its cover look like? What are the blurbs on the back? But how about this? Who's Emily St. John Mandel? She's no Stephen King. That doesn't mean she's not as good a writer as he is. What I mean is she's nowhere near as famous as he is. Her fame is certainly growing. Apparently, um, Obama thinks her newest book is one of the greatest reads of, of, of the year. He thinks it's absolutely fantastic. So, you know, someone, someone might know about Emily St. John Mandel through that or through the fact that Station Eleven is going to be turned into an HBO Max TV series. But she's not a household name like Stephen King. And even if I said Emily St. John Mandel and you said, oh, I think I heard about her in an article that I saw online, you still wouldn't have the kind of reaction that you do to hearing the name Stephen King. I hear Stephen King, it's synonymous in my mind with horror. Right away, we go Stephen King, we go horror. Even though some of his books aren't really horror. Even though some of his works, like uh, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, could be read by my mother and probably should be because it's a book about a little girl who goes and gets lost in the woods who loves baseball, she'd never touch it with a 20-foot pole because it's written by Stephen King. It'd be a tough, tough wrestling match to get my mother to read that because Stephen King's name is on the cover. We don't just read books by uh, a really famous author. We have a predisposition to them. We know going in, when we pick up Stephen King, we're probably in for something scary. His name is synonymous with fear. We look at the cover to The Stand, the, the, some of the more recent covers to The Stand, and there's like dead bodies all over the road. Well, you know what you're in for, right? Unlike Station Eleven with its tents and its starry sky, even, even the more accurate cover from Subterranean Press, uh, we don't get any impression that this is like pandemic. There's, there's no sense in which this is like the end of the world in that respect. We certainly see that it's the end of the world, but it's in the not the end of the world that we're getting in the stand. If we take a look at the, the cover to many of Stephen King's novels, we find that even his name is rendered in a font that's sort of got this sense of like blood splattered on some flat surface, right? His name is uh, rendered in font that says fear, right? He's one of the most famous novelists in 
uh, our imagination right now and the cultural imagination. You say Stephen King, people have some sense of who you're talking about. And if I, like, often I'll say, so we say, what are you reading? And I'm saying, I'll say, Stephen King. And they'll be like, whoa, that's, what, that's the reaction, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Because they know that mostly he's, that's what he's known for. He's known for horror. And we want to know this because there's a sense in which some readers think that what happens when they read is that the author's mind is being downloaded directly into their brain. And that's simply not the case. We have an intermediary between us and the author, and it's the book itself, the text itself, or in the case of a filmmaker, the movie. We're not getting a direct download from someone's mind when we engage with their creative works. There is the intermediary of the text itself. And the reason that I think that I need to stress this is because we live in the age of social media where the author can come out after the fact and say, meh, about whatever it was that they did in the book. So you can have somebody like J.K. Rowling rolling up and saying, well, what I really meant to do with Hermione was, and then the fans are like, oh my God. And my response is, hey, the books are published. The books are published. That information is on the page. It's fixed. Although occasionally an author will go in and tinker. And The Stand is an example of this. Stephen King went back and he's like, I want to put all this other stuff in there because it's going to flesh this out. J.R.R. Tolkien rewrote The Hobbit to fit Lord of the Rings better later on. So sometimes writers come along and they will tinker with their work. But we always have those earlier editions as a sort of artifact of whatever it was that they wrote down in the first place. And words are slippery because it's not just, you know, that, that, that the writer writes the words and they download exactly what they want you to feel into your brain because Emily St. John Mandel didn't mean to write something that was tense and horrific and suspenseful. But many of my students receive her writing in that way. So there's not just authorial intent. And there's not just the formal elements of the book itself, but there's also our response, our emotive, affective response. How did it make you feel? And we can't ignore that in the case of a writer like Stephen King, the way we feel about his writing is going to be biased by our understanding of who Stephen King is. So someone might pick up one of King's um, less horrific works, something from his collection of novellas, different seasons, uh, like the story, The Body, that the movie Stand By Me is based on. That's not a horror story. That's a coming of age story. It's a beautiful coming of age story. It's a funny coming of age story. It's not The Stand. It's not Salem's Lot. It's not Pet Cemetery. It's not it. But we have an impression based upon who we think Stephen King is. That's kind of like that celebrity thing that I was talking about last episode with actors, that authors have to adopt to some degree a persona. And if they want to break out of that persona, they're often told by their publisher, well, then we're going to have to come up with a pen name for you. And I have author friends who wanted to write outside the genre for which they were best known, and they were either forced to write under a pen name, or they just never published that content. Or they had to wait until they became so famous that they were able to just do whatever the heck they wanted. But there are expectations based upon this. So when we pick up a book, we're not tabula rasa. Like people say like, well, I just, you know, a number of my students say every year, they like, I just want to read a book and not have any impression of it whatsoever. We can't. Everything about a book has a 
anticipatory thing to it. Be it the blurbs, the cover, the font that's used on the cover, the title. There are expectations that are lining up. You read the summary, you've got expectations. Those paratexts put us in a position of having expectations for what a text is going to do, what the narrative will be. And when those things aren't matched, we can be very, very disappointed. And some people just, that's it, I'm done with this book, rather than to retool and say, okay, well, this wasn't what I was expecting, but I'm going to read on. Incidentally, writers are also trying to anticipate what your your emotional experience is going to be, and they write for an imaginary audience. Whether they intentionally do that or intentionally do that, they have to write for a particular audience. They have to write and think, okay, who do I want reading this? And who do I imagine reading this? Because if we don't imagine an audience, it's very hard for us to write. This is true, not only for fiction, but for writing essays. Uh, if you can't imagine an audience, then you don't know who you're talking to. If you're just talking to everyone in the world, that gets really, really difficult. Even as I do this podcast, I have to imagine an audience to some degree. First and foremost, my students. Secondly, the people who listen to it who aren't my students. Thirdly, my dad, because my dad listens to this. And so every now and again, I'll, I'll remember that my dad hasn't seen this particular movie or hasn't read this particular book. And it reminds me to give a summary of it right? So if I imagine an audience, then it's going to give me a more concrete way of writing about those things. But this just shows that there's this really complex feedback loop going in the process of constructing a book and the reception of that book. Another name that's synonymous with horror is Edgar Allan Poe. And Poe had this essay that he wrote about short stories, which were sort of a new thing at the time. It's not that there hadn't been short fiction before, but the, the form of the American short story was, was just happening. And Poe was writing about it. And he had some theories that we have uh, sort of coalesced into something that's a little more coherent. Um, but what Poe said about writing short stories is that there was a unity of effect there. Now, he says in almost all classes of composition, the unity of effect is of the greatest importance. And I think that's true, too. So talking about what I was just talking about, it's as true for essays as it is for fiction, that there ought to be a unity to the writing. In the case of fiction, that is often about a unity of effect as opposed to potentially a unity of meaning. And yet we're trained as readers in high school, in university to read for meaning. Part of that, too, is that we're pattern recognition animals. Our brain wants to derive meaning from even meaningless things. And if we only see half of an object, we'll extrapolate what the rest of it looks like. But we consume narratives, I think primarily, for their emotional effect. We want to feel something. Think about when you go to Netflix. What am I in the mood for? We often say, what am I in the mood for? We don't we don't often sit down. I don't want to say we never do because I think people do. I think the number of documentaries that are on uh, streaming services like Netflix demonstrate this, although there is a sort of mood associated with that as well. We don't often sit down though and go, what do I want to learn? We say, what am I in the mood for? We might say we're in the mood for learning and that's, that moves us off of some other emotive spaces that we'd be in. But we, we may say, I'm just not in the mood for that right now. Having a conversation with your partner or your friend or your families, uh, and you say, hey, what do you want to watch? I'm just not in the mood for that right now. That's about, a, that's about emotion. And Poe was recognizing that in this idea of the unity of effect. What effect would this have on the reader? This is not about theme. We are so trained for theme. I have asked my students a couple of years in a row, what's the effect that you think 
this part of this book is going for? What effect do you think this film was trying to have? And my students come back at me with theme after theme after theme. What effect was contagion going for? It's all over the paratexts. Fear. It wants us to feel scared. It wants us to feel scared of doorknobs, right? And to some degree, it achieves that. Poe's saying that good composition goes for a unity of effect that is of the greatest importance. He said, if his very initial sentence, if the author's very initial sentence tend not to the outbringing of this effect, so if the first sentence isn't working towards that effect, then the author has failed in his first step. In the whole composition, there should be no word written, no word written, of which the tendency, direct or indirect, is not to the one pre-established design. So in other words, every word the writer puts on the page should be working towards this unity of effect, a unity of effect, so that we're not jumping from horror to comedy in five pages. That's not to say you should never jump from horror to comedy, because you can, and it can work. Longer works don't have a consistent unity of effect. They may only have a shortly sustained unity of effect in certain sections of the text. In movies, certain sequences will have a unity of effect, although sometimes an entire film will have a unity of effect. What emotional effect do you think Stephen King seeks to achieve in the prologue to The Stand? When you read it, how did it make you feel? We know what it's supposed to make us feel. We take a look at the cover to this book, and we have a pretty good idea of what we're supposed to be feeling. And then we compare and contrast that with Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven. What single effect do you think Mandel was seeking to achieve in the theater? Or maybe there's more than one effect. But even if we can, I just, even if we identify more than one effect in the theater, is that the same effect that Stephen King was going for in the stand? Or is it different? I mean, just, just, I'm going to read the beginning of the stand, opening of the prologue. Sally, a mutter. Wake up now, Sally, a louder mutter. Let me alone. He shook her harder. Wake up. You got to wake up. Charlie, Charlie's voice, calling her. For how long? Sally swam up out of sleep. First, she glanced at the clock on the night table and saw it was quarter past two in the morning. Charlie shouldn't even be here. He should be on shift. So immediately we know something's wrong. Then she got her first good look at him and something leaped up inside her, some deadly intuition. Her husband was deathly pale. Deathly pale. Very particular word choices, right? Think about Poe. If if, if if the first sentences don't push towards this, if every word on the page doesn't push towards this effect, then the author has failed in their work. Her husband was deathly pale. It's very different from... He had a sort of alabaster complexion. <laughs> His eyes started and bulged from their sockets. Okay, so he's got this wild look on his face. Eyes bulging from their sockets. Those are particular words, and they have a certain emotional resonance to them. The car keys were in one hand. He was still using the other to shake her, although her eyes were open. It was as if he hadn't been able to register the fact that she was awake. Charlie, what is it? What's wrong? All you have to do is have somebody say what's wrong in the first couple pages of the book, and you know that something's wrong. And in the following, the pages that follow that opening, we get a sense of that wrongness, very strong sense of that wrongness. Again, contrast that with, with the theater and the revelation of a pandemic flu that Jeevan gets, this very, very quiet sort of thing. And let's, let's jump back to that 
a bit of intertextuality I started the episode with. There's always that person who warns everybody and they don't listen. How is Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven different? It's still participating in that intertextual moment with this somewhat open slash covert citation. It's not, it's not overtly going, this is Jaws. It's not overtly going, this is Independence Day, but it's that idea of a wide range of apocalyptic or disaster catastrophe narratives and the repetition of that character that goes, get out of town. And no one ever listens except in Contagion, apparently, and Station Eleven. In Station Eleven, we get Hua being... The guy going, there's a shark in the water. And Jeevan's the guy going, then I'm not swimming. Jeevan believes it. He believes his friend right away. We don't get any of that conventional thing. But that is a sort of conventional moment. And then there's a twist on that. But like I said last episode, Jeevan isn't front and center for the plague. He's having a walk through the park in Toronto during a, during this snow, maybe it's a snowstorm, snow's falling. It's very picturesque. You have to imagine if, if we were to focalize that through a camera lens, what kind of visuals would we use? What kind of music would we use for Jeevan's moments of awareness about how he wants to change his career? He wants to break up with his girlfriend and he finds out that there's this pandemic happening. He's like, ah, I need to take care of my brother. So he goes and he, he gets some groceries and then he goes over to his brother's place and he's like, hey, what's up? Because he brought all these carts and he has the time to go up a freight elevator and all this sort of stuff versus what do we got here? Four, five pages? of serious urgency on the part of Charlie and his wife. We need to go now in the middle of the night, wake up, get the baby. We got to go. That's different. What effect does Stephen King seek to make us feel suspense, horror, tension, all the things that my students have told me station 11 made them feel. I am utterly convinced Stephen King meant for his readers to feel. Now I'm not saying that if a reader experiences fear reading Station Eleven, that that's wrong. We can experience whatever we experience. We can be triggered by absolutely banal and mundane things in narratives based upon our own experiences or the lack of those experiences. However, once we begin to analyze a text, once we begin to really dig into it and say, okay, what's going on here? We may need to revise our position on however it was that we felt about the work. Once we begin to analyze it, moving away from our emotional response, and emotional responses are a great place to start from. Tell us a lot about what a work can do. And, And I think it's also indicative of what's great about narrative and why we love it. Why do we keep consuming stories? Why do we keep consuming films and video games and books about things that aren't true, that haven't happened? No matter how closely a novel coheres to reality, it is always fiction. We're going to talk more about that in an upcoming lecture, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for now. But it's clear that King, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's an exaggerated example, but it's exaggerated because they are working from the same intertextual stock of apocalyptic conventions. Flu outbreak, gotta go. Flu outbreak, gotta go. In the, in the stand, fleeing is about fear. In Station Eleven, fleeing is about caring, ultimately. Uncertainty, to be sure, but not fear in the same way that King's prologue to The Stand inspires. If we take a close look at the language of each of these 
narratives, each of these prose narratives, we find all sorts of differences. And when we take a really close look at a passage, it's something that we do in English called close reading. It's where you take just a passage of the book and you get right up close with it. And you take a look at the particular word choices and you wonder about the intertextual resonance and you wonder about like, you know, what, what came right before this, what's going to come right after it. Think about those things as well with film. When we do close readings of film, we can think about what scene preceded this. How did that scene make me feel? How do those feelings affect the scene that I'm currently watching? That's close analysis, close reading. And what I noticed when I did close readings of Station Eleven is that Emily St. John Mandel is regularly using what I like to call terminal language. We could call this end of the world language. We could call it apocalyptic language, but I call it terminal language and I call it terminal language for a very particular reason, which I'll get to in a moment. But, but one of the meanings of the word terminal is it's over, right? If someone says they have terminal cancer, we know that that means that that person doesn't have long to live. We know that it means the end. So if someone is terminal in, in the sense of illness, then it means things are over, right? A terminal situation, we might say. And we've got a repetition of terminal language throughout the theater. By the way, we have a repetition of terminal language throughout the book. And I want you to start trying to pay attention for when that terminal language pops up. Not terminal imagery in the sense like of, yeah, the whole book's about the end of the world. Of course it is. But more terminal language, words that, that, that point us towards an ending. It occurred to Jeevan that there might not be much time right? This almost gone place. Talking about the being in the grocery store. I love the exit where the order of the store ended and the frenzy of the storm began, right? The order of the store is about to end. And what is about to begin? The frenzy of the storm. The very space, the, 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 the narrative space that Mandel describes here is meant to convey the, 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 the apocalypse that is about to occur. But it's done in a sort of poetic way. It's done in a metaphoric way, right? So this is how it ends, right? Over and over again, terminal language. We get repetition of terminal language. Now that liminal, liminal is when you're like between things, that liminal language, uh, terminal language of the exit where the order of the store ended and the frenzy of the store began, got me thinking about the other meaning for terminal. And that's why I stuck with terminal language. The very title of the, the novel, Station Eleven, has prompted some students to associate it with trains, train station, right? And that's not a bad thought. When I type terminal into one of the uh, web repositories of uh, images that I use for my slides, I get this image. No, sorry, this one here. I get this image of an underground train station with um, a bunch of escalators coming down into it. Three comings and goings. I love that image so much. So many images. If I type terminal into uh, the Unsplash repository, I get all these images of train stations. Now, station 11 isn't a train station. It's something else. And we'll get to that. But there's a clue here, I think, to one of the things that Emily St. John Mandel is up to in her novel. And incidentally, it's something that I haven't seen anyone talk about in academia. So that it's, it's a potentially new opportunity for, for us as readers, for us as writers to enter into the conversation that's going on about Station Eleven, where people are talking about the intertextual value of, of Shakespeare 
in the novel. And people are talking about the intertextual aspects of it as a work of apocalyptic literature. But there's this aspect that hasn't been touched on a great deal. And it's one that I'm already been trying to warm us up to back when we, you know, I read, um, Robert Frost's Fire and Ice to you, I said, I don't think this is about the end of the world at this global scale, but rather at a personal scale. And I think that that's also true of the terminal language that Emily St. John Mandel employs in this. And then there's a there's another aspect, and this has been touched on a little bit by some other scholars. Um, and I'm going to read a passage from uh, early on in the theater when Jeevan has just jumped up onto stage at the Elgin Theater, which is a real place. We're going to talk about real places and fictional and how fiction appropriates them in an upcoming uh, lecture. But uh, we get this moment of, of another aspect of terminal language here in, uh, in the opening uh, moments of, of the theater. So Jeevan's just jumped on, uh, up onto stage and he was doing CPR on Arthur Leander and then this doctor comes in and spells him off. Not quite a room, Jeevan thought now, looking around the stage. It was too transitory. All those doorways and dark spaces between wings, the missing ceiling. It was more like a terminal, he thought. A train station or an airport, everyone passing quickly through. The ambulance had arrived, a pair of medics approaching through the absurdly still-falling snow, and they were upon the fallen actor like crows, a man and a woman in dark uniforms crowding Jeevan aside. The woman so young she could have passed as a teenager, Jeevan rose and stepped back. The column against which Arthur had collapsed was smooth and polished under his fingertips, wood painted to look like stone. There were stagehands everywhere, actors, nameless functionaries with clipboards. For God's sake, Jeevan heard one of them say, can no one stop the goddamn snow? Regan and Cordelia were holding hands and crying by the curtain, Edgar sitting cross-legged on the floor nearby with his hand over his mouth. Goneril spoke quietly into her cell phone. Fake eyelashes cast shadows over her eyes. No one looked at Jeevan, and it occurred to him that his role in this performance was done. A bit of terminal language. He, you know, Mandel points us in that direction by saying that the space behind the curtain on stage was more like a terminal. This is Jeevan's thought, right? It was more like a terminal, doorways and dark spaces. It's like a train station or an airport. And we're going to get an airport later in the book, aren't we? And then Jeevan thinking to himself, it occurred to him that his role in this performance was done. And yet it's not. It, it, he He moves on and... Mandel takes us with him. Arthur Leander moves off stage within the diegesis, the fictional world, forever. Although we're going to get him back later too. And then we're going to see his perspective of that night. And we will be led up to the moment when he literally exits the stage. When there, you know, there has been the coming and the going of the stage. All of life's a stage, Shakespeare said in one of his plays. And then we have actors and they come and they go. And I don't, I don't know if, if Mandel was meaning to reference Shakespeare there, but she's certainly meaning to, to reference beginnings and endings. That space between the order where the order of the store ended and the frenzy of the storm began between this life and the next, not in an afterlife sort of way. We never see Arthur Leander in an afterlife, but rather Jeevan's life up until that point and Jeevan's life after. What is the pre-apocalypse and post-apocalypse at the personal level. 
right? This repetition of, of terminal language. You contrast that with King and you're not getting any of that. King's not imagining something after so much for his characters here. Come on, he said. Get in, woman. This is close to the end of the prologue from the stand. She did. He backed out, the Chevy's headlights momentarily splashing across the house. Their reflections in the window. Oh, sorry. Their reflections in the window. I'm having some trouble with my reader here. <laughs> their reflections. Dang it. Their reflections in the window looked like the eyes of some hunted beast. Uh, he was hunched tensely over the steering wheel, his face drawn in the dim glow of the dashboard. Um, and for whatever reason, I'm, I'm unable to read the entire text. Let me just adjust that. I feel terrible doing this to my YouTube viewers. The podcast is going to completely not have this. So technical difficulties are temporary. Please stand by. He was hunched tensely over the steering wheel, his face drawn in the dim glow of the dashboard instruments. If the base gates are closed, I'm going to try to crash through. I mean, we don't get it. We never get a moment like that with Jeevan. Jeevan's never crashing through. He's not like, he's not running across the street with his, his grocery carts and like smashing through the front door and punching the, the elevator, uh, the, the guy who operates the elevator, like punches him, you know, he has a conversation with him, says, oh yeah, I'm a survivalist. These are very different texts. And he meant it. She could tell. Suddenly her knees felt watery, but there was no need for such desperate measures. Desperate me The base gates were standing open. One guard was nodding over a magazine. She couldn't see the other. Perhaps he was in the head. This was the outer part of the base, a conventional army vehicle depot. What went on at the hub of the base was of no concern to these fellows. We know what was going on at the hub of the base. Ooh, they were, they were doing something with a virus, with a very deadly virus. I looked up and saw the clock had gone red. This is a reference to something Charlie has said earlier in the prologue. She shivered and put her hand on his leg. Baby Levon was sleeping again. Charlie patted her hand briefly and said, It's going to be all right, hun. By dawn, they were running east across Nevada, and Charlie was coughing steadily. <gasps> They're not going to make it. They're leaving the stage. They are going to be exiting and not... You know, there, there's going to be no continuation for them. In terms of terminal, it's absolutely terminal as ending for Charlie and his family. The novel goes on, but for Charlie and his family, there is an ending. They're all going to die. The next couple pages, you'd know that. Station 11 doesn't indicate, doesn't give us a sense that, that Jeevan is done for. Doesn't give us a sense that, you know, everything that he's doing is in vain. He never says, we're going to be all right. And we go, mm, I don't think so. Mandel's language is crafted in a way that recognizes the beauty in these moments. And we don't want to mistake this, as we'll find out in an upcoming episode slash lecture. We don't want to mistake this for Mandel saying, oh, did you know that when the world ends, it'll actually be sort of a beautiful thing? Because fiction isn't necessarily talking about the thing it's talking about in, in the sense of like, if it's talking about the end of the world, Mandel's goal isn't to really necessarily predict how it will happen. See, far too often if people write about the future, people are like, well, they were predicting whatever it was. There's a, there's a pandemic novel called uh, Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. And she anticipates, <laughs> toilet paper shortages, she anticipates that Americans would balk heavily at any sort of restrictions, lockdown restrictions. She anticipates those things. Did she predict what happened this last year in the pandemic? No. Her book isn't really about that, ultimately. It's about a bunch of other things. It's about people, you know, humans being human, no matter what time you find them in. Mandel's novel is about 
something more than the apocalypse. The apocalypse is more like the setting. It's not really the theme. And we'd be like, well, how can that be? There's so much of this book that's about the end of the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what's the focus? And we can get at that through these moments of compare and contrast and through thinking about what effect we assume the writer wants to have on us. And how do we analyze that effect if perhaps we don't feel it? Because Lord knows we don't always feel what the movie or the novel wants us to feel. Like we might see a comedy and it doesn't seem funny to us, but we can recognize that it was supposed to be funny. We can watch a horror movie and think, that wasn't scary. That didn't scare me. But we can recognize that it was supposed to be scary. And in Station Eleven, I think the ending, we just read the ending of the prologue to Stephen King's The Stand. And this is the ending of the theater, which is the first section of Station Eleven. It reads like poetry. And so I formatted it like that once just to see what it would play out like. If I was to format it like a poem, what would it look like? And it looks like poetry. It reads like poetry. Mendel ends the section of the book with an incomplete list. No more diving into pools of chlorinated water lit green from below. No more ball games played out under floodlights. No more porch lights with moths fluttering on summer nights. No more trains running under the surface of cities on the dazzling power of the electric third rail. No more cities. Now, when we read poetry, we're supposed to watch for repetition. What repetitions do we find in Mandel's prose? Lit green from below, played out under floodlights, porch lights, moths, summer nights, trains running on the dazzling power, the dazzling power of the electric third rail. So repetition of light slash electric slash power imagery all the way through this. But light is uh, is the the one that that surfaces more often so there is this repetition of no more no more no more but what is there no more of there's no more of electricity there's no more of, of electric light no more films films are lit by electric light except rarely except with a generator a source of electric power drowning out half the dialogue and only then for the first little while until the fuel for the generators ran out because automobile gas goes stale after two or three years aviation gas lasts longer but it was difficult to come by no more screens shining in the half light light imagery electric imagery as people raise their phones above the crowd to take pictures of concert stages no more concert stages lit by candy colored halogens electricity again light imagery no more electronica punk electric guitars the loss of electricity over and over no more pharmaceuticals no more certainty of surviving a scratch on one's hand a cut on a finger while chopping vegetables for dinner a dog bite no more flight no more towns glimpsed from the sky. And here she shifts. No more flight. No more towns glimpsed from the sky through airplane windows. Points of, and we return to it, glimmering light. No more looking down from 30,000 feet and imagining the lives lit up. There it is again. By those lights at that moment. No more airplanes. No more requests to put your tray table in its upright and locked position. But no, this wasn't true. There were still airplanes airplanes here and there they stood dormant on runways and in hangars they collected snow on their wings in the cold months they were ideal for food storage in summer the one near or ones near orchards were filled with trays of fruit that dehydrated in the heat teenagers snuck into them to have sex i love how she puts heat like when i when i chop this up as poetry uh, i i cut it after dehydrated in the and then i move heat to the beginning of the line because she's placed 
heat and teenagers going to have sex right next to that rust blossomed and streaked. And I can't help but feeling as the, the literary critic that, you know, rust and lust, is there some sort of, maybe not. It's probably just your English prof digging too far. No more countries, all borders unmanned, no more fire departments, no more police, no more road maintenance or garbage pickup, no more spacecraft rising up from Cape Canaveral. Here we have flight again. So we have light and flight as repetition throughout this sequence. Light and flight. We don't get this sort of thing from Stephen King. That doesn't make him a bad writer. It makes him a different writer. No more spacecraft rising up from Cape Canaveral, from the Vikinger Cosmodrome, from Vandenberg, Plashetsk, Tanagashima, burning paths through the atmosphere into space. No more internet, electricity. No more social media. No more scrolling through litanies of dreams and nervous hopes and photographs of lunches. This is some of the most beautiful... Like, I know it's prose, but it feels like poetry. Some of the most beautiful poetry I've ever read about uh, social media. And, and and there are people who are like, oh, she doesn't seem to like social media. And I'm like, no, I think she recognizes the beauty in it. And that's this whole passage is about the loss of the beauty of the former world. No more social media. No more scrolling through litanies of dreams and nervous hopes and photographs of lunches. Cries for help and expressions of contentment and relationship status updates with heart icons, whole or broken, plans to meet up later, please, complaints, desires, pictures of babies dressed as bears or peppers for Halloween, no more reading and commenting on the lives of others, and in so doing, feeling slightly less alone in the room, no more avatars. I've wondered often about that being the last, the very last line of the theater, no more avatars. I wonder about that. Maybe that's just me, me being too Englishy, too literary. But here I think we have one of the first uh, indications that this book isn't just going to be about the end of the world, but that it's also about the end of little worlds. It's the end of, an end of personal worlds, right? The uh, heart icons, whole or broken, right? Um, relation status, relationship status updates, etc. So the fact that this novel begins with a, an ending to its first section that has this deep sense of poetry in a book that begins with a moment of poetry. Like you open the book up and you start reading it. And one of the first things you're going to come across is Sheshwa Miwosh's, um, there's an excerpt from the separate notebooks. The bright side of the planet moves towards darkness and the cities are falling asleep, each in its hour. And for me now as then, it is too much. There is too much world. So the way that Mandel writes is so distinct from King. And the way that she renders the scenes is distinct from what we saw with Contagion. We want to think about those distinctives. To really understand what Station Eleven is, is it just one more apocalyptic novel amongst many other apocalyptic novels and films and games? What are the differences? And what do those differences make? Next week, we're going to switch gears. We're going to be looking at the next section of Station Eleven, which is titled A Midsummer Night's Dream. We're going to be looking at another piece of short fiction, The Portable Phonograph. And uh, we're going to be doing, once again, a compare and contrast to try to understand better what's going on with Station Eleven and to move forward into uh, understanding uh, what Maximilian Feldner was talking about with his article on uh, Station Eleven and the beauty the beauty that we find in this post-apocalyptic world. 